0: Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. Here we dive deep into the worlds of permaculture, natural building, and regenerative living as we aspire to help you reach your highest potential for yourself, for your community, and for this beautiful planet that we all share. As always, I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher and I have a great session for you in this week's episode, so let's jump right in. Are you looking for the best resources to help you build a regenerative lifestyle? New Society Publishers has been a leader in sustainable publishing for over 30 years. They publish good news and solutions for individuals and organizations seeking to change their lives so that they may change the world for the better. Their company mandate goes far beyond the single bottom line of profit. They care deeply not only about what they publish, but also how they do business. They believe in the authors that they take on and the works that they bring to the marketplace. From sustainable living to progressive parenting, New Society Publishers has the books you need to help build a better world. Buy your print and e-books online at www.newsociety.com or at fine bookstores near you. Alright now, bread has been a passion of mine for years. Ever since we tried making it for ourselves when I worked on trail crews in the national parks, I've been fascinated by how much better tasting homemade bread is compared to the majority of what's available on supermarket shelves. Now, I eventually worked as a baker for a small artisan bakery in Seattle and have been making my own bread for years now and even building earthen ovens to bake in. So this interview with Victoria Redhead Miller, author of the new book From No-Need to Sourdough, A Simpler Approach to Handmade Bread, was really exciting for me. In this interview, we start with a brief history of how we got from homemade bread in every household to Wonder Bread and factory-produced pre-sliced loaves. Victoria walks us through the whole process, starting from selecting flowers and mixing ingredients all the way to finished bread fresh from the oven. We also go in-depth about the topic of gluten and why many people's aversion to this simple protein might be unfounded. This is another information-dense interview, so grab your notebooks and I'll turn things over to Victoria. Hey Victoria, thank you so much for taking the time to be with me today. Uh, I'm really looking forward to asking you so many questions about bread because it's been a few years since I left the bakery that I used to work at in Seattle and I can't wait to dive in deep with you again. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, I'm doing great and thanks so much for inviting me to be part of this podcast.
0: Hey, it's my pleasure. So what do you say we just jump right into the questions? I've got lots I'd love to ask you. You bet. All right. So if you could get us started by telling us a little bit about your personal background how you became passionate about doing so many of these things for yourself and what sort of opened up your world to the intricacies and the delicious aspects of making your own bread.
1: Okay. Yeah, I um, grew up in Seattle um, and actually lived there the first 45 years of my life. And 12 years ago in 2006, my husband and I moved to our off-grid farm about and a half hours from Seattle uh, and so that's kind of my life story in about two sentences there um, but um, as far as the bread goes my mother um, started making bread when I was about in eighth grade and I remember just you know I, the <clears throat> the clearest memories I have of that were of just kind of being fascinated watching this whole process happen how you know she would put Flour, salt, yeast, and water in various combinations in a pot, mix it all up, and knead it. And I didn't understand, of course, at all. I was, you know, I was in eighth grade. I was probably thirteen or fourteen years old. I didn't understand at all the mechanics of um, of what was happening in that in that bowl there, and why that bread was kind of magically rising. And you know, and then somehow or other, these really simple ingredients, you when you stick them in the oven at a certain point, it turns into this. You know, wonderful, delicious thing, and I, 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 think part of my fascination with that was because, um, you know, there's eight kids in our family, and my mom was a pretty busy stay-at-home mom, and we were always encouraged to, you know, find, you know, various crafts or sports or whatever to amuse ourselves. Um, and uh, my twin sister and I, in particular, were really into doing all sorts of of handcrafted things, and. Some of those fall think flour and water paste. And so I was kind of looking at that going, gosh, you know, this paste. OK, if I mix the flour and water, I get this paste. But if I mix flour and water and add a little yeast into it, it turns into something completely different. How's that possible? And, you know, I'm not sure if that was exactly my thought process at the time. I just, re- you know, uh, um, I just remember feeling completely fascinated and mystified by that and very curious. I've always just been very curious about how things work. I've kind of a mechanical mind and I, and I, and so that's just where my mind goes is to want to understand what's happening, why it's happening. uh, And, and what I might be able to do to influence or control the variables in that process. Uh, And so so that was, I was about in eighth grade, and then when I was in ninth grade, the school that I was going to at the time, um, back then, and this was in the mid-70s, um, the, that school required girls in ninth grade uh, to take home economics. And, uh, and one of the things that we did in that class uh, uh, was we learned to bake bread. I was, frankly, a little bored with it at the time because I already pretty much knew how to make bread. I would kind of learned by looking over my mom's shoulder and, uh, you know, and at some point she, you know, let some of us kids who were interested help with that process. And so I was pretty much used to the process already. um, And so I didn't feel like I actually learned an awful lot new uh, about bread in that class. But... But still, it, it kind of, you know, kept the momentum going for me educationally in terms of, um, you know, continuing to pique my interest in the process. And, and if you fast forward a number of years there, um, in 1999, my, that was the year my father retired from his job in, at Boeing. And, and at the same year, he was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes, and where that comes into this is I my my clearest memory of that whole thing was when he came home from the doctor one day and said, "My doctor says I can eat sourdough bread, but not other kinds of bread." I don't really have a memory of asking him about that at the time, but I do remember feeling really curious about it because I had not the slightest idea why I mean why what's different about sourdough bread. Uh, you know, I, I didn't understand at all why sourdough bread would be okay to eat, but not other kinds of bread, because I didn't have the slightest idea what, sour, what's, what sourdough was, you know, I yeah, had exactly. no idea at all. But I'm almost certain, um, and I wrote about this in the first chapter of my book, because I'm almost certain that that, that was the first time that I got interested in sourdough bread and it kind of went on from there it, and it just sort of percolated around in the back of my mind for quite some time and it wasn't until about oh 10 or 11 years ago that i really started you know to it, it kind of came to the front of my mind and and i started making a conscious effort to study this whole thing about sourdough and learn something about it and Um, and, and it's, and that's just, and I've, I've just been completely fascinated with sourdough based breads ever since. I still make some types of yeast breads, but the majority of the breads that I make these days are sourdough based. And I have this same starter that I started, uh, I think it's almost 11 years ago now. Um, and still have this thing going and, uh, and I usually make bread, uh, once a week, sometimes more often, you know, for instance, lately, um, in the course of researching my book, I learned how to make English muffins, which, like bagels, was always one of these things that seemed sort of mysterious and inaccessible. And, but I learned how to make them, and it turns out they're really easy to make. And my husband's just crazy about them, and so I make those quite frequently. And that's a very simple yeast bread, um, and you know. But as I said, most of the bread that I make these days is sourdough based, and. Even within that category, there's just so much variation that you can do um, in terms of, you know, change the type of, the the, the combination of flours that you use or, you know, it's fermenting at a cooler or a warmer temperature or whatever. There's a number of different things that that can influence uh, the the, the quality and the taste um, of the finished bread. And it's, to me, it's just, it's really fun because I'm somebody who likes to be continually learning and this just... Even within the scope of just sourdough bread, it just feels like there's an unlimited, you know, range of things to continue to learn. Uh, So that's kind of how I, you know, uh, got into bread in the first place and it's evolved over the years to get to be this, uh, you know, really quite a serious passion uh, for me.
0: Yeah, I love that story about how you sort of found the sticking point that made sense to you and... The health of your father was sort of the catalyst to explore something that you might not have otherwise dived into and i think a lot Mm -hmm. of other people can relate to those those moments those sort of aha moments like what is behind this that i don't understand but clearly is is worth exploring now could you take us through Mm -hmm. a brief history then of bread and how we got to the point like you described earlier where much of what we consume is actually quite unhealthy. We got to the point of Wonder Bread and factory loaves with almost no nutritional value. How did that happen?
1: Well, um, yeah, and the, the history of bread, of course, goes back thousands of years, and at least as far back as the ancient Egyptians, and uh, and in the, the hot, dry climate of North Africa there, you know, they, they grew a lot of wheat and other grains there um, and, and were making um, probably some fairly simple flatbreads, um, uh, you know, that were either baked, you know, on – they were generally baked on hot rocks, which might have been in certain times of the year might have just been heated up by the sun and might have been heated by a fire. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me, but um, – uh, you know that's that's really kind of the you know, that that is still the simple flatbreads that are just baked over uh, you know, over wood heat is you know still the basis for you know the the bread you know culture in a lot of different countries in the world um, and including countries where they don't grow wheat and they grow gluten free grains and so forth um, but um, at least as recently as the 1800s and I'm not really sure why this became a thing but um, it for a a lot of years it was kind of it was sort of a status symbol um, for you know it, it, it was an indication that the whiter your flour was or the whiter your bread was that was sort of an indication of you know if if your bread was really white people just assumed that you were rich and it became this status thing where uh, they were adding things like alum and and other things to the to wheat flour to make it look whiter, which seems horrible to me. But that's what they were doing because it was because they could they could charge more money for that flour, you know. And bakers would buy the whitest flour they could, and uh, and as I said, I don't really understand why there was such an emphasis on how white this flour was. But that's what it was, and this was. It true through most of the 1800s at least. And, uh, and then that kind of led up to, um, in 1927, that's when the Continental Baking Company introduced Wonder Bread, uh, which was this soft, you know, uh, had a bread that was really white, had a, a nice thin soft crust that kids would eat and not complain about, and, you know, which must have been a huge deal for busy housewives at the time. And, uh, and, and that just became pretty much an overnight sensation. It was, you know, first of all the, you know, the housewives up to that point, uh, you know, they, if they were rich enough, they could afford to have a baker or a cook in their house who would do this for them. But otherwise they were making their own bread almost every day. And so this was a huge load off, off of their plate, you know, to be able to buy this, this beautiful white soft bread that, as I said, kids would, kids would eat and they would enjoy and, uh, and not hassle their mothers about. And, and then three years later in 1930, they wonder bread introduced the pre-sliced version, which made their life even easier. And, but the, you know, I remember wonder bread from when I was a kid and, You know, they had those colorful wrappers on them. They were white and they had all these multicolored, you know, brightly colored balloons on them. And it said, helps build strong bodies 12 ways. And, you know, which, of course, as a kid, that's that kind of language kind of impresses you as a kid because, you know, who doesn't want a strong body? Right. And, um, you know, but I didn't understand what that meant. I didn't know till many, many years later that the twelve the, the the twelve ways that it helps build strong bodies was, you know, that was vitamins and minerals that they added back into that flour because in the process, in the processing of that wheat, it was so highly processed and then sifted and sifted and sifted again to take every little bit of bran and germ out of there. So it was it was as white as possible, um, that they pretty much stripped all of the nutrients out of there as well as the dietary fiber, which, as you know, is very important to our health. And, uh, and so they then had to add these vitamins back in to make it remotely nutritious, uh, and, and even so, uh, you know, it, it 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 never it's never, you know, gotten back up to the point of you know where how nutritious it would have been if they had left even some of the bran and germ in there. But it was just like this. Well whole that's
0: just th- it, isn't it, right? Like mm-hmm. all of these food products love to congratulate themselves for adding nutrition into foods that <laughs> didn't need it had they not taken it out in the first place. Right. Sort of congratulating themselves for doing extra work right. and still ending up with a less nutritional product.
1: Right. That's that's in general, that's my that's a exactly my view of it. And, um, uh, you know, there may be some exceptions where some of those things actually are fairly good for you. But I think in general, when there's a list of ingredients that include, you know, things like vitamins added back in, <clears throat> I think that's pretty much a clue that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, you uh, you know, that, that that food is is so highly processed as to not be all that nutritious for you. And it's probably a waste of your money. Um, and certainly that is true of an awful lot of the mass, the mass marketed uh, white flour, um, especially all-purpose flour uh, in this country. It is just, you know, and when you see words like fortified or something like that on it, that's a clue too that... Um, you know because it's not always really clear uh, on the on the ingredient label exactly what is in there and what's not um, but if you see words like fortified and that kind of of thing that's a that's a real good clue that that's a very highly processed food product um, and you'd be better off buying a whole grain product if you can
0: yes certainly so with all that in mind why is it important to rediscover this healthy and delicious staple food for so many cultures? And I know that from my own experience, at least making simple breads is a very accessible process for many people. Um, give me a little reason why we should start to bring this back into our households instead of outsourcing it to companies and um, and, and the grocery store, frankly.
1: Oh, sure. Yeah. Um Uh, You know, there's there's several to my mind, there's several really good reasons um, to make your own bread. You know, one of them certainly is that you will, um, you know, compared to buying good quality bread in a store, you will certainly save a lot of money um, making your own. Um, And it, and plus, of course, as we've been talking about, you have control over the ingredients that are in it. Um, you can pick and choose and come up with your own combination and make it as you know simple or not simple as you want. And just and but just do it to suit your taste and the needs of your family. Um, and I think that alone is a really good reason uh, to do it. You know, when when I do these presentations. Um, I've been really interested to hear recently that the number one reason why if people don't make their own bread, I would have thought that the number one reason why they wouldn't do it is because they thought it was too complicated or too hard. But actually, what I've been hearing is the main reason why people uh, seem a little intimidated by it or not quite sure about trying it is because they don't really get how they can fit it into their schedule. And so, I've kind of tweaked my presentations as I've gone along to reflect that because, you know, in the course of doing all this study over a number of years um, about sourdough breads, you know, I've, I've worked out ways to make the process so much, you know, so much less complicated and, and easier on my schedule. Uh, and uh, because that's really got to work for you. Otherwise, you're just simply not going to do it. Uh, you know, because most people seem to have uh, an impression, and I don't really blame them, they have, a, they have an impression that, you know, if I'm going to make bread, I have got block out a certain number of hours in a day to do that. And and it's true that the fermentation process can take several hours and all of that, but most of the time involved in making bread is not hands-on. Most of the time, you're ignoring it; it's doing its own thing. Um, and it's it, it's it's actually that's what I've been working at trying to, you know, to to talk to people about about how to how to make this work for your, for your schedule and your lifestyle um, because an awful lot of people really want to, to do it uh, these days and it's very gratifying to see. But, you know, par- certainly part of the uh, – in recent years, of course, there's been this big movement about um, uh, kind of anti-wheat and anti-gluten um, that has really discouraged a lot of people from, uh, from even eating bread, much less making their own. Um, And so, that's kind of a a big topic of conversation, you know, in my presentations as well. I get a lot of questions about that. Um, And so, a lot of what I'm trying to do is convince people that unless you have celiac disease, um, you know, really, wheat can't really hurt you that much. Um, There's definitely, absolutely, I agree there there is such a thing as gluten sensitivity. My mother can't eat gluten. She does every once in a while, but she really can't eat it very often or else she really reacts to it. And there is, there is all of that kind of thing. But for most people, um, wheat is actually a very healthy thing. It has been for thousands of years. And even today, something like 40% of the world population gets most of its daily nutrition from wheat. And a lot of people don't know that, but it's a really important number to me um, because this is, <clears throat> you know, this, and this has been true for so long and it's just kind of, it's a little frustrating to me that, you know, that people are so ready to jump on board with this argument that says that after all of these many thousands of years, all of a sudden wheat is bad for us and we shouldn't eat it, you know, when actually it's an extremely nutritious food and, and quite a lot of the world depends on wheat and other grains as well, of course, um, for an awful lot of their daily nutrition.
0: Well, let's try and unpack that a little bit then. Let's try and explore here why gluten has sort of become a pariah in the food industry, or at least these in the last handful of years, and why some of the concern about it is a little unfounded or misdirected.
1: Yeah, um, there were... there were a couple of books that came out in the last few years. Um, one of them was Wheat Belly, which I think came out in 2011, and then I believe it was 2014 when Grain Brain came out. And those two books got a lot of attention on Oprah Winfrey Show. and <clears throat> And both of them, I have not read Gra- uh, Wheat Belly, but I have read Grain Brain, and that. Um, and so I'll just talk about that one for a minute. Um, uh, you know, basically, this guy who's a medical doctor um, says that the wheat that we are eating today is genetically different from the wheat that we'd been eating for hundreds and thousands of years. And um, while that in itself isn't a bad thing, his, his argument is that it is so different now that it amounts to practically a poison for us to eat. He uses terms like that. He calls, he referred to gluten as a modern poison and I kind of have a reaction to terms like that. I just kind of, you know, I I feel like there's an awful lot of fear connected to food in general in our culture. And, you know, look at those magazines, the women's magazines on the grocery store checkout line, and you'll see, t- you know, headlines like guilt-free cheesecake and things like that. There's words like guilt and fear and, you know, and heart attack on a plate and things like that. That, that And I think that's really, I think it's really sad. You know, we everybody has to eat, and I think we ought to enjoy it. And... Uh, you know, and the, the the truth is that you know with uh, you know with wheat, as I said, definitely gluten sensitivity exists, definitely celiac disease <clears throat> it, it it exists. Um, you know, but one thing that doesn't get talked about much is that there are other things in wheat and other grains that people can be sensitive to besides gluten um, and but gluten has kind of become this scapegoat and uh, you know for a whole you know in grain brain you wouldn't believe the 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 laundry list of human ailments and conditions that this guy attributes to gluten. And I personally think it's just wrong to to take one thing like gluten and say this is the cause of things you know he he says that, that Alzheimer's is you know is a gluten-related thing. Oh, the obesity epidemic in this country is gluten-related and a whole a whole lot of other things. And I was just really kind of blown away by that. Um, and I've done a lot of, of uh, in the course of researching the book, I've read many, many study abstracts, um, you know, that, that are all on this subject of gluten and gluten sensitivity. And in some cases, they're how gluten relates to things like sourdough bread, um, which we can talk about in, in a little bit, if you like. Um, But in Italy, uh, both in Italy and Australia, they're doing a lot of very interesting research um, about gluten and about celiac disease uh, and that kind of thing. And I find it really interesting, for example, Italy, um, which the vast majority of the bread and pasta that is consumed in Italy is 100% white flour, Um, only exception really is up in the north part of Italy when you get closer to Germany they grow corn and they grow rye up there and so the the grains are a little bit different but in general most of the country almost all of the bread and the pasta is 100% white flour they have something like an 8.3% obesity rate compared to the US which is 38% at this point I think was the last number I heard Um, and so it's a little hard to look at numbers like that and say, well, we're going to blame this on wheat or gluten. You know, they eat way more wheat per capita uh, than we do, but they have a much lower obesity rate. So I think it's important to, you know, to you know every not everybody has the time, of course. I, I spend a lot of time researching this, and I get that not everybody has time to you know to go out there and learn all of this stuff. I do think it's important you know, if, if you think that you might be sensitive to wheat or to gluten, first of all, you can talk to your doctor about it. Although it's important to know also that except for celiac disease, there is no, t- it is as far as I know at this point, there is still no definitive test available um, that will definitely say whether you have a gluten sensitivity or allergy, there is a definitive blood test for celiac disease. Um, but otherwise, there really isn't. Um, and so, you know, but I, I my my feeling is if you feel better when you're not eating wheat or if you feel better when you eliminate gluten from your diet, then you should do that. This is a quality of life issue that we're talking about here. And, you know, I, I am and so I absolutely encourage you to, you know, do what you can to find out if if these things work or don't work for you, but have it be an informed decision and not just... Responding to these, you know what I think of as kind of scare tactics, like in books like Grain Brain and Wheat Belly, that are you know basically saying that, you know it, it you know not only if you do eat this stuff, you're you know you are at great risk of uh, you know of of causing a number of different medical issues in your life, um, but. You know, on the other hand, if you if you completely eliminate all those things, then supposedly you're going to have a really healthy life. And I don't agree with either of those statements. And part of the reason is because, you know, I have, I have a lot of different gluten-free flours in my kitchen right now. I've been doing an awful lot of experimenting and testing in the course of working on the book and and also trying to find some sort of bread that I can make for my mother, that actually tastes good. Um, So I've been working a lot with these things. And, uh, you know, one of the things, and this this does not get any press at all, but an awful lot of the gluten-free grains out there are at least as highly processed as wheat flour is and have little to no nutrition in them. And so in the pursuit of (laughs) eliminating gluten from our lives in the hopes that that will make us healthier people, you know, we're back to this, we're back to 1927 and Wonder Bread, uh, and only these flour don't have you know 12 vitamins and minerals added back into them. Things like rice flour definitely has very little nutrition in it, uh, and so so there's all these things that kind of come into the mix. And you know when it comes down to it, you know everybody's got you know I often feel like it's a case of. The good news is we have choices about what we eat and the bad news is we have choices about what we eat because ultimately we have to make that choice. And what, what I'm saying is, you know, absolutely it is your choice. I would never ever tell anyone, you know, to ignore, you know, in, in, ignore things about gluten or, or, you know, anything like that. You know, I'm just saying try to have it be a somewhat informed choice and know why you're choosing what you're doing. Uh, and, and so it's been a little bit of a hard slog over the last couple of years to convince people that bread is actually not necessarily bad for you. We've been just told that for so long. I've had people come up to me in the coffee shop where I do my internet stuff and ask me what book I'm working on. And I say, oh, well, it's about bread. And they'll say things like, oh yeah, you know, I probably won't buy that book because I don't really eat bread anymore because oh my gosh, it's so bad for you.
0: Wow, that's unfortunate. And then
1: when I try, yeah, and when I try to draw them out into conversation about that, they usually can't tell me why they believe it's bad for you. They just believe it is. And so that that's, that, yeah, that that's part of what, that's also, in you know, in a, in a smaller part, that's kind of what I'm trying to do with this to kind of try to, you know, try to help people get little bit past their fears, both of the bread making process and the bread itself.
0: Marvelous. Well, I really appreciate you breaking that down and explaining that, um, giving a better perspective and understanding of both the history and some of the misconceptions. It seems like with everything, there's always two sides. And if you you go too far on the extremes of one or the other, you miss some of the nuances, the history and the practical applications. And (laughs) <laughs> Especially in such a staple food and crop for almost all of human history. It's a shame right. to, to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater just because there are many products that are not either good for us or nutritionally valuable doesn't mean that there aren't others or other techniques that would uh, replace that as, as a proper food staple the way it has been for so long.
1: Oh, I I absolutely agree. And that's one of the things I often say at these presentations, you know, is, you know, this, how is it that this food that is, as you said, so basic to just about every culture in the world and has been for a long, long time, how is it that we've gotten to the point of being both afraid of eating it and intimidated about making it? It's, you know, the vast majority of the breads that I make, you know, have four ingredients in them. It's flour, salt, yeast and water and when i say yeast sometimes it's commercial yeast sometimes it's a sourdough starter but there's some sort of leavening in there but it's basically those four ingredients and in, in different combinations and um but but yeah that's um uh that's that's to me a really big uh, a really big issue is um uh, you know but but i I, I just I, – I feel like there's – it in the last few years, especially since Grain Brain and Wheat Belly came out, and they're both big bestsellers and got a lot of publicity and that sort of thing, uh, that – you know, as I said, gluten and by extension, wheat, because, you know, wheat is the number one gluten grain. It has by far a lot more gluten in it than the other two gluten grains, which are barley and rye. Um, and so wheat has just, as I said, become this kind of scapegoat.
0: Unfortunately, it does seem to be happening with so many other foods as well. Uh, bread just being mm-hmm. one of them. Now, if we could switch, right. switch topics for just a second, I'd like to start to get into the process of making this and show people that it is very accessible. So, let's start from the beginning and talk about different ingredients needed to make a basic loaf. I know you mentioned the four that you always use. There's a huge variety mm-hmm. of specialty flowers with different characteristics and behaviors, but I know from having been a baker myself and making my own bread for years that it's amazingly simple and cheap to get started on your own. So, could you help to sort of unpack the process for us? Sure.
1: Yeah. And uh, and as you said, there's a huge variety of flowers out there. It can be very confusing. Um, and so, uh, but you know, really, it's, it's very simple in terms of ingredients. And what I would really recommend when people are just starting out is, you know, and the, the avail- part of what's, what's confusing, too, is the availability of, of certain grains. It varies quite a lot depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, and, uh, and so, and, and there's even sub-variations within that. For example, the, um, in Washington State, where I live, the eastern part of the country, east of the Cascade Mountains, where it's much hotter and drier than Western Washington, they grow a lot of wheat out there. Um, and and they and they produce, um, a lot of the wheat they grow out there is fairly soft and they make things like all-purpose flour from that. The all-purpose flour that comes from Washington state is really different from the all-purpose flour you'll find in a southern state just because of the, the varieties of wheat they grow are different and the way that they, that they process them are different. And so there's a lot of variation there. But, um, and I get asked a lot, you know, if I have recommendations of particular brands of flour, and I really don't. And partly it's because, as I said, availability is, you know, is so unpredictable in different places. Um, But I just, you know, what... Uh, the my favorite bread, my favorite sourdough bread that I make pretty regularly is, and I'm just kind of I'm used to doing things in percentages and by and measuring things by weight. Um, what I like to do, my favorite sourdough bread is, uh, it, it's 70% white flour, and when I say white flour, this particular flour um, is an unbleached organic bread flour. That's different from all-purpose flour. Um bread flour is uh it has um it's not super high protein. The one that I use is about eleven and a half percent protein, somewhere around eleven or twelve percent is a really good number to, to shoot for um you know with, with your bread flour. Um I like this combination of 70% white, uh 24% whole wheat flour and six percent rye. Um and that's normally what I use. Definitely I I make you know, I make breads that are some breads that like ciabatta, um, which is my i I make hot dog buns with ciabatta dough. That's an Italian bread that's 100% white flour, and uh, and and we just like making things like hot dog buns and and that sort of thing with that kind of with that kind of dough. So. Um, You know, you can – what I would recommend when people first start out is – and I I say this in the book where it's just kind of – the book is sort of organized into what I call comfort zones. Um, And so, for example, the first comfort zone in there is just basic no need yeast breads. And I recommend that, you know, if you're just starting out and you've never made bread before or it's been a really long time since you've made bread, start out there. Get comfortable with the process or get comfortable with it again, and then if you want to, you can move on to some other, you know, uh, slightly more involved process. But um, I really recommend that you start out with some kind of, you know, whatever is the good kind of unbleached, it's really important to use unbleached flour. I think, the bleaching agents that they use, and again, this dates back to back in the old days when it was really super important that the flour be really, um, and and also the um, the but the, the actually the function of of the the bleaching agents is actually to essentially artificially oxidize the flour and so um, what that amounts to for you and me is it extends the shelf life of that flour that's why they do that i re- I really highly recommend you avoid bleached flour um, partly because bleaching agents really inhibit fer- fermentation, which I'll talk about in just a minute um, here. Uh, so unbleached bread flour, um, you can usually find it in bags on a grocery store shelf. Um, I really recommend if you can, if you have a resource nearby for this, to buy the flour in bulk um, from a place where they sell a lot of flour and there's, uh, and there's pretty rapid turnover. Um, if you can do that, um, yeast, um, you know, for yeast bread, I like instant yeast, um, just because it dissolves really quickly and it's just very easy to use. There's absolutely nothing wrong with using active dry yeast. It just takes a little longer to dissolve it. And we're only talking a matter of minutes. It's not, it's not a big deal. So either, either instant yeast or active dry yeast. Um, I like using sea salt, Definitely, don't recommend using iodized salt if you can avoid it.
0: Again, for the inhibition of fermentation, right? Uh,
1: yes, exactly, and uh, and and also the only other the only other kind of sometimes tricky thing about salt is, and again, I'm used to measuring everything by weight, um, and uh, and so you have to be a little bit careful depending on what kind of salt you use, because for instance, a tablespoon of kosher salt. Doesn't weigh as much as a tablespoon of sea salt, and so there's a little bit of tricky stuff in there. But um, uh, but but in, in general, I just I just like to use sea salt. I I'm somebody who, although I do a lot of experimenting on certain levels with things, I like to have a basic set of just a few of my go-to ingredients that. I always use the same brand, and I'm used to how it behaves when I mix it up and knead it, and all that sort of thing. I like to just pick up pick something and and more or less stick with it. Uh, and definitely recommend that if you're just kind of starting out. So, um, and water, um, people don't talk that much about the water, but there are a couple of points to make about the water. Yeah, I would definitely recommend um, avoiding chlorinated water if you can. If that's all you have is chlorinated tap water, what you can do is uh, the day before you're going to or the night before you're going to make your bread, um, just run a pan or a bowl full of that water or uh, as much water as you need for the bread um, and just let it sit overnight. Um, and, and most or all of the chlorine will have dissipated by the morning. It will have kind of evaporated into the air. Um, and otherwise, um, I pretty much recommend using some kind of spring water if you can. Bottled water is just fine. Um, I would not recommend using distilled water. And that's mostly because, uh, the, there's various minerals in spring water that get taken out during the distillation process. And those minerals are really—they're—I they're, uh, wouldn't say exactly, you know, indispensable, but they're fairly essential to the uh, fermentation process. They—they they help the yeast get really active uh, in the fermentation process. And so, uh, so, so uh, avoid distilled water, avoid chlorinated water. That's the the bottom line of that part of it. Uh, so. Um, so, there you go, flour, salt, yeast, and water. And and again, by, by the yeast, you know, you you might substitute at some point a, uh, a sourdough starter for that kind of thing. But just in the beginning, this is the really simple way to do it. And it's the kind of bread I made for a lot of years be- before I discovered an interest in sourdough.
0: Marvelous. So, now, what are the different stages once you've made the dough, going through proofing, forming, and baking? If you could... Uh... Help to explain about the amount of time that that would take, and how someone could schedule mm-hmm. around the process so that, though you know, overall it might take four to six hours to have a finished loaf, there's maybe only twenty minutes of active time in my experience of working with with the material.
1: Right, and um, and it's important to know too that I I am used to you know the 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 times and things that I. I generally talk about are from my own experience and I, I like to hand knead my bread takes a little longer than doing it by machine. Um, but, um, but that, that's just what I'll talk about because that's what my experience is. Um, to make it, uh, you know, just a, a real simple, uh, no need yeast bread. So the parts there are, you're mixing up the dough that is putting the flour, salt, yeast, and water into a bowl, Stirring it all up so the flour is all hydrated, um, and uh, and then with no knead dough you don't really need it, um, uh, but you do have to stir it for a couple of minutes to make sure everything is really thoroughly mixed. And then the next part of the process, and this is and 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 this is true of any kind of bread, uh, the next part of the process um, is called fermentation. It's um, also in, especially in some of the older cookbooks. Um, you know, it's it's called usually the first rising, um, and that's just when that dough is it's sitting in a bowl and in a you know at room temperature usually. And uh, and what's happening is fermentation. And just real briefly, the fermentation process. This is true of any fermented food. Uh, you know, pickles or sauerkraut or kombucha or anything. What's happening in fermentation is Yeast comes in contact with a source of sugar, and in this case, it's the starches in the grain, mm-hmm. and uh, which is a carbohydrate, uh, and the, the yeast consumes that carbohydrate and produces, as a result, as essentially a waste product, um, it produces both alcohol and carbon dioxide. And so, that's what's happening while that, that's what is making the, those carbon dioxide bubbles that are being formed in the fermentation process. That's why that bread dough is rising. Uh, and, uh, and it's kind of important to note here, too, that the, the reason why that dough will keep rising and keeps rising, you know, and uh, without, without those bubbles bursting and, and having the dough fall apart is because of the presence of gluten, Gluten is very, very stretchy, very elastic, and that allows that dough to expand. It allows those gas bubbles in there to expand without breaking. And that's, it's, it's much like the difference between regular chewing gum and bubble gum. Bubble gum is just much more elastic, and you can blow a lot bigger bubble before it breaks than, uh, than with regular gum. It's, it's much like that. So during the fermentation process, with a regular yeast bread um, at room temperature, that will typically take, uh, um, can take anywhere from an hour to two hours. Uh, typically it depends a little on the, the temperature in the room. It depends on how much yeast you put in and, uh, but in general, it's that first rising or first fermentation will take about an hour to two hours. And the way that you'd usually know that that is done is the dough has basically doubled in size or doubled in volume. And, at that point, the next part of the process is um, a lot of people think you punch down that dough, it's, and they kind of take that literally and think you need to, you know, actually make a fist and punch it. Um, what you really are doing is just what I would call gently deflating it, and because it has risen quite a lot. There's a lot of gas bubbles in there, and you just press down on it gently just to lightly deflate it. At that point, you're going to shape it in the kind of loaf that you want. To end up with. And that might be, uh, you know, you might be baking it in a pan, you know, like to make a sandwich type loaf. Or you might do like I do most of the time and, and make some sort of free form shape that's going to be baked, um, you know, either on a baking sheet or in my case, I, I like to bake it on a baking stone.
0: Yeah, that was always my favorite portion. Mm-hmm. When I worked at the bakery, Tallgrass Bakery in Seattle up in Ballard, mm-hmm. um, i that was my main job. I was the former and learned a lot of different techniques, especially from my excellent colleagues. Um, everything from baguettes to, oh boy, we did so many different ones, compagnon. Uh, mm-hmm. I even forget the names now, but we probably yeah. had about 20 or 30 different types that we formed and that was the best part.
1: Nice. Yeah, and that's one of the many fun things for me, you know, with bread is again, you can just take this really simple four ingredient dough and come up with a, with pr- practically unlimited variations on them in terms of, of shape and uh, and and style, you know. Um, so uh, so you you once you shape your dough, then then the dough's going going to go through a a second much shorter. Um, fermentation or rising, and that's usually referred to as the proofing stage. And contrary to popular opinion, this you do not need a special proofing box or put it in your oven on low or something where you're artificially raising the temperature to do that. Um, it works just fine at room temperature. It just takes slightly longer. But when I make bread, typically the that proofing stage takes barely an hour and the dough is not necessarily going to double in volume like it does during the first fermentation um, and and then of course you're gonna you're gonna bake it and it you know and people ask me a lot about what temperature to bake bread out that depends on so many different variables um, depends on whether it's a free-form loaf or it's in a pan um, and a number of other things but most kinds of bread that I make, the sourdough breads I typically bake um, at a fairly high temperature of 475 Fahrenheit. Um, most kinds of bread I think that I make are somewhere between about 400 and 475. Um, and of course, the time that you're going to spend baking it is going to depend on, on various things too. Um, but um, so that's, that's pretty much it. You mix the dough. It goes through a first fermentation. You deflate it and shape it, and then it goes through a shorter second fermentation or proofing, and then it's baked. Uh, and and then of course it's cooled and presumably stored and you know of course in our case it you know half the loaf gets eaten the same day it's made um but because we both you know it's it's. oh man yeah. with the group
0: that i live with there's no way a loaf of bread would last more than like an <laughs> afternoon yeah that's that's. <laughs> i'm never yeah. worried about storing it oh
1: sure exactly yeah um but you know although it is it is one, one big advantage of sourdough based breads is they do have a a, a better uh, a better shelf life um but as you said, you know, in our house, shelf life is usually not much of an issue because <laughs> we do go through it, even just with the two of us. Um, uh, of so course. That's, yeah, so that that's pretty much it in a nutshell. And, you know, there, there's a wide variation in terms of, um, depending on what kind of bread you're making, in terms of how long that process takes. I, I often tell this story at the presentations about how a couple of years ago, I discovered that I was getting up at like two in the morning to do something with my bread dough. (laughs) And I remember thinking, what in the world am I doing? I'm not a professional baker. I'm making one loaf of bread. And I'm, you know, and then I could never get back to sleep properly after that. And I just thought I was crazy, you know. And so that was when I started figuring out how to, rather than shortening the process, I actually lengthened the process. And, you know, to where the whole process, when I'm making sourdough bread, The whole process from when I refresh that sourdough starter to when I've baked that bread takes a good 24 hours or more, but it's so much easier on my schedule. I'm not getting up in the middle of the night and it's, it's so much easier and, and I'm making better bread. You know, it's one of the things that I learned kind of in more recent years was that a general rule of thumb with, you know, with real quality baking is the longer the fermentation period, the better the flavor of the bread. And that, by the way, a lot of people think that's only true of sourdough bread, but that's not so. It's also true of yeast breads. So, as you were mentioning before, sometimes when you made bread, you know, the, the fermentation would, you know, sometimes the whole process would take four hours or sometimes closer to six. Well, you know, you, you may have noticed, I don't have that sophisticated of a palate, but, um, but if you're paying attention, you probably will notice a difference between the taste in the, in the taste of the bread in that six-hour loaf compared to the four-hour loaf because it's been fermenting for longer. Uh, so, yeah,
0: well, so speaking of that, I know you mentioned that you wanted to go more into the process of fermentation and this was really, as you mentioned as well, the sticking point for you, what got you first interested in trying sourdough. Mm -hmm. So what is the, the difference in the nutritional value and maybe even the chemical makeup of a bread that has been fermented at all or even longer that changes the nutritional value and basically turns it into a different food.
1: Yeah, it it, it really does, you know, and, and a lot of people think that because it is, and I, I don't, I confess, I don't know very much about this part of the process, but I'll just mention it briefly because I get a lot of questions about it. Because bread is a fermented food, um, these days we're hearing a lot about probiotics and a lot of people ask me about this. So, isn't sourdough bread better for me to eat because it's for it's, you know, because of these probiotics. Well, first of all, all bread is fermented, not just sourdough bread. All bread is a fermented food. If it wasn't fermented, it would be a solid brick that you would, you know, you might use for a weapon, but you wouldn't want to eat it. Um, And so, all bread is fermented, and you know. But my understanding is um, that the probiotics that they're talking about in there, which come from the lactobacillus bacteria, um, which is also an important part of the fermentation process, and, and 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 actually the lactobacillus bacteria is what's responsible for most of the flavor components of sourdough bread. Um, but but some of those things get destroyed at, you know, at a certain temperature up above, I think it's above 180 or so degrees Fahrenheit. And so, um, uh, you know, as you probably know, since you worked in a, a commercial bakery, um, you know, the internal temperature of a finished loaf of bread is going to be about 200 degrees Fahrenheit and possibly 205, somewhere in that range there. And so it's unclear from what I've read so far, It's it's it seems likely that by the time that that bread is baked, um, there's not much of that probiotic benefit in there anymore. However, there are some other benefits uh, with sourdough bread. Uh, For example, um, as I mentioned, when uh, my father got uh, diagnosed with diabetes and he was told he could eat sourdough bread, um, well, it is true that, I don't remember the exact numbers, but it is definitely true that that sourdough-based breads um, are definitely lower on the glycemic index than yeast breads, and I, I, am as assuming that that's at least one of the reasons why the doctor told my father he could eat, uh, eat sourdough breads, uh, and, yeah, yeah, that um, makes a lot of sense. And and it's also true that, and this is especially true with sourdough breads that are fermented for extended periods of time, you know, like in some cases, 24 hours or more, I've heard of people, you know, I've, I've heard of bakers who ferment their sourdough bread for even 36 hours or more before they bake it. And the longer it's true that in this, and I found this out from these studies, especially the ones happening in Australia, um, that this, the... The action of it's not so much the wild yeast in the sourdough uh, starter um, as it, it's more the the action of the lacto, the the specific strains, of lactobacillus bacteria that are in there that go to work on the gluten in that weed. And somehow, nobody really uh, really understands exactly why this is happening, but it appears, it appears pretty clear that it is happening, that somehow or other, the, um, in the fermentation process, the gluten in that wheat or other grain is essentially being deactivated. Uh, and to the point where they've done a lot of studies, nobody's quite ready to come out and say at this point, definitely you can, you know, if you're sensitive you know, or allergic to gluten, you can definitely eat sourdough-based breads with impunity. But they're getting pretty close to that. Um, Everybody says we need to do more studies, but essentially what what the studies so far have shown, and these are mostly with pretty small groups of people, like a couple of dozen people at a time, um, is that people who, uh, even people who have been diagnosed with celiac disease, um, have been able to eat a limited amount of sourdough-based bread without a measurable reaction in in their gut. Uh, And that's, to me, that's really exciting news. Um, yeah, and, that's remarkable. You know, it is, and um, and as I said, they you know everybody's kind of being a little hesitant to kind of come out and say we know this for sure, um, but they're getting very close to that, and they're 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 doing more studies, and um, they've done quite a, they've done a bunch of specific studies, like for instance with teenage children um, and specific groups like that, um, and and have given them a measured amount. Of sourdough based bread or a measured amount, uh, the, the equivalent in yeast bread. Um, and and they can actually measure the reaction in the gut to that. If you're going to react to gluten at all, it's going to be in the small intestine, and they can actually measure that and see in real time, which is really cool. and but the results that they've come up with was you know basically that sourdough bread is you know is is much less likely to bother you than yeast bread. And, and as I said, nobody's really entirely certain of the exact mechanics of that and why that is so, but it appears to be so. And I have friends myself who I have made sourdough bread for, and one friend in particular I'm thinking of in the town near where I live, um, who, um, you know, she doesn't have celiac disease, but she's, you know, she feels she's pretty sensitive or possibly allergic to gluten, but she can eat the bread that I give her. Um, without any reaction at all to it. And she's, of course, very happy about that. I can imagine. (laughs) Um, And, yeah. Um, And so um, so to me, it's just, it's, it's really interesting to do. um, I'm and now that the book is, is done, um, and has gone to press, I, you know, I am getting back to spending some more time with that research because I had to leave off with the research at a certain point because I had to, you know, finish the book. Um, but I just got totally immersed in this research. It was so fascinating to me, um, the, the stuff that they are finding out about this and, and I've been talking about this. I've been out on the speaking circuit talking about this subject for about a year and a half now, and I get so many questions about this exact thing. I'm so looking forward to the day when I can go to these audiences and say, "Hey, you know, check this out. This is this is what we now know." Um, and it's also very exciting because it's it it's it's kind of going right along with what you know I've been talking about about this um, about us getting back to. The, the place uh, where we're not so intimidated or afraid about eating bread or even making our own bread. Um, and that to me is just, is really great news. I've had so many people come up to me in recent months, even young people, even 20 somethings and say, gosh, I'd really like to learn to make bread. And that's, it's so encouraging to me because it has felt like in the last, just the last few months, really, it's felt to me like, I'm hearing a lot less than a year compared to a year ago. I'm hearing a lot less now um, of this kind of thing of, oh, I don't want to eat bread because it's bad for me. Or, you know, I can't eat gluten because it's bad for me. I'm hearing less of that now. Uh, And so I am really hopeful that the timing of this book coming out is going to be good in the sense of people are ready, you know, to give it a try. Either for the first time or give it a try again. I was just in North Carolina the weekend before last, speaking at the Mother Earth News Fair, and a woman there who was probably in her 60s, she said, "I haven't made bread for 40 years, but I really want to do it again." And uh, and, and and I'm hearing a lot of that kind of thing, and it's it's so encouraging to me. I just think it's wonderful wow, yeah. because as we've been talking about, yeah, it's been, you know bread is just so. It, it, it's so basic to so much of the world that you know it's how is it that we've gotten to this point of being you know being scared of yeah. it
0: It's such a community food as well uh, so many regions around the world have their own versions um, often it, it, it really brings people together. In a way that many other foods that I've seen in 13 years of travel just doesn't. Of all the skills that I've amassed Mm -hmm. and the things that I've learned how to do, the fact that I can go anywhere in the world and bake bread has definitely been the most popular one.
1: Yeah. Oh, I I agree with you. Yeah. And with all the different food trends out there, and I'm sure they're happening in other countries as well, you know, bread stays fairly constant. You know, people come up with, with different variations on that, of course, but... Um, and I haven't traveled as extensively as you have, but um, uh, but I've been in France a few times and some other European countries. And, um, uh, you know, and, and really like, for instance, in Paris, I mean, my gosh, um, you know, with all the different kinds of bread you can find at an artisan bakery in Paris, still the number one selling loaf is a basic baguette
0: yeah i I can imagine you
1: know it's a real it's yeah it's a real simple basic thing and there are still you know in a lot of the african countries and uh in the eastern countries and you know pakistan and afghanistan and india um (laughs) you know they um they still an awful lot of their traditional breads there um you know are simple flatbreads, uh and in india I learned not all that long ago um, that, you know, an awful lot of people actually live off the grid in India when you get away from the big cities and they and they, they cook things without electricity.
0: I'm not that far from that myself where I am here in Guatemala. Oh, is that like, right? We are on the grid, but there are quite a few communities around here that are quite disconnected and um, disconnected in kind of the modern sense, but still much more connected to their roots and their culture and their indigenous foods. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting to see those contrasts like you mentioned. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah and you know and since you're a natural builder you know too and you work with cob as well as some other things um you know actually I was wondering if you if you've ever built a cob oven you know where where you are now or or anywhere else um you know because that's that's
0: I certainly uh-huh. have yeah yeah and uh, I've been building those for years I've done everything from barrel ovens which we just last workshop that I taught mm-hmm. and um I'm actually going to be building a very large uh, earthen domed pizza oven for commercial use for a cafe in the next town over. So, those types oh, of things nice. are kind of gaining in popularity again mm-hmm. because of the quality of food that they crank out. It's amazing.
1: Right. right. Yeah. And, um, you know, and I had this, you know, and as you know, I, I, I built my own wood-fired oven. I, I started it actually almost three years ago, and I'm still... You know, I'm still in the process of putting layers of insulation over the dome, but I've been using it. You know, ever since ever since the first layer of clay got finished over the dome, which was uh, in September. It'll be three years um, since that happened, and I've been using it ever since then. And uh, and I had this, and it's a fairly decent size. It's not huge, but you know, the inside of it, it's the hearth is kind of oval shaped, and it's about 42 inches from front to back, and about 28 inches from side to side. And, uh, uh, and the, the inside of the dome is about 16 inches high. I've, I've cooked whole turkeys in there. Um, it's, it's, it's quite good sized and it's plenty big to, to do a lot of things. But I had this moment, um, once where I was, um, I, I, built this, uh, a rack into the, the shelter that I built over the oven. Um, I built a rack on the West side of that to hold, uh, to hold my oven wood. And I was stacking up wood there one day and I was kind of looking at the oven and, and I had this moment where it just occurred to me, you know what, this looks a lot like a tandoor oven laid on its side. It just kind of, you know, and and so at that time, this was about a year and a half ago, at the time I was really, I love cooking of all kinds, um, but I was really getting seriously interested in Indian food. and uh, And what so I favorite. ended up… Yeah, I ended up. Um, I did some research about tandoor ovens, and I thought, huh? And so I've used that oven to to make tandoor uh, tandoor chicken and and some other things and roasted vegetables and 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 of course naan. Um, and and it's just, I I I mean you you know because you have more experience with these ovens than I do. Um, but I I've just been fascinated by the. I can't even describe the difference in flavor. There's something subtle about it that's not not exactly smoky it's just slightly different that just makes it in my in my mind just unique and incredibly delicious and
0: yeah it's super rich i can't wait to get the chance to try and build one of those myself
1: yeah it's it's been it's it's really been fun and especially you know when we're getting into the warmer weather now it's uh you know it's awfully nice to uh, when I want to bake bread, uh, which I do pretty regularly, obviously, um, it's really nice to have the option of not having to use my inside oven and heating up the house on a hot day. Um, and, oh yeah, sure. Yeah, and also, you know, y- you know, every it might seem like a real little thing to most people, but I I kind of feel like you know every time I use that outdoor oven, I'm using a little less gas or some other fossil fossil fuel, and and that to me is. It's, it's, it's just important in terms of our values and, and what we're trying to do with our lifestyle. Uh, and plus, since we heat our house with wood, and a lot of our 40 acres is woods, and we, you know, we cut down trees. Um, and what I've been using for fuel in the wood-fired oven is the branches from those trees. And it works great because with their smaller diameter you know, it's that just means that there's more surface area of the fuel that's exposed to air. And so it burns hot and it burns, it, it burns fast, it heats up really fast. And that oven gets to about 900, 900 degrees. And so yeah, I
0: love that you mentioned that. I mean, that's one mm-hmm. of the initiatives that we're trying to do here in our small community, because deforestation is such a problem, mm-hmm. that smaller diameter wood can very regeneratively be pollarded off of Of trees without having to cut them down entirely. Mm -hmm. And if it's managed in that way, uh, you know, it it does a lot to help fight deforestation. And like you said, Mm -hmm. you get a really hot, very clean burn off those small diameter uh, dry sticks and poles and things like that, which are fantastic for the types of rocket stoves and Mm -hmm. ovens that, that we build around here.
1: Right. And, you know, and of course, David is thrilled that I'm using these branches partly because I'm doing all the work of cutting them up and hauling them and everything, but also because, well, a couple of reasons, one of which is I'm not raiding the woodshed and using the wood that we use for heating the house. I'm not using that for fuel. And also when we're out in the woods, you know, a couple hundred yards from the, from the, from the house, um, you know, and we cut all these branches off of the trees that we're going to use for, for wood heat, that stuff piles up in the woods and it can become a fire hazard. Um, Certainly. And, you know, we, we like to leave, there's a couple of strategic locations that we have figured out where we like to leave um, a relatively small pile of that kind of thing for habitat for small animals. Um, there's I didn't know, even know until we moved out there how many small birds nest very close to the ground. And so, we, we do like in certain places where it's not so much of a potential fire hazard, um, you know, like close to the pond or something like that, um, you know, we, we will leave some piles of branches there, you know, for habitat for small birds and, and some small mammals as well. But in general, you know, uh, we like to clear that out of the woods. And so, David is just, he's so happy about this that we are, you know, we're not creating a fire hazard and we're not wasting anything. You know, but th- those branches yeah, are not absolutely. going to You're waste. creating it,
0: habitat, you're cleaning up the underbrush, mm-hmm. and it makes your bread. There's, mm-hmm. Everybody wins there. That's fantastic. Exactly.
1: exactly. So as far as I'm concerned, it's a win-win situation. Yes, it's pretty labor-intensive, processing all the branches and making them into oven wood and hauling them down and stacking them. But in my view, it's really worth it. Uh, and, uh, and so that's, yeah, that's and, yeah. And then you
0: don't have to pay for a gym membership either.
1: Well, that's very true too. Yeah. We get plenty of exercise at our place. That's yeah, that's, that's for sure. Uh, uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so, and, and, and that part, I didn't even know any of that. I didn't even know what I was going to be using for fuel before I built that oven. And so that's just been kind of this nice surprise that's come along as part of the process of learning, um, how to use it. And like I said, David is just, you know, so he's so happy about it that, you know, I'm I, I'm I'm kind of taking care of all the branches, and um, you know, and we're kind of keeping our environment a little safer in terms of fire danger, and uh, you know, and you know, it's like free fuel, pretty much. All I have to do is put some time and effort into it, and so, and as you said, the res- yeah, as you said, the results in this oven are just it's just so amazing. It's uh, you know, I um, the, the hardest part about that whole thing is ch- you know was trying to figure out. Um, you know, how to kind of manage the temperature in there and, you know, when to put the bread in and that sort of thing so that it would cook but wouldn't burn. And, you know, but when I built it, I had actually embedded um, thermocouples in three different places there. And one of them I drilled a hole into one of the hearth bricks and cemented a thermocouple in there. And one's at the top of the dome and one's at the back of the dome. And they're connected to a thermometer. So when you turn on the thermometer, you can see in real time all three temperatures in those places, and that's helped a lot.
0: Oh, yeah, that's the way to go. Yeah, that,
1: that's helped a lot. Certainly. Yeah, The one thing I don't really know is what the air temperature is inside the oven. Um, you know, I can only pretty much... You know, I, I've put a thermometer in there a couple of times, but then I've been a little scared to do that because it's so darn hot in there. And especially when the air gets moving through there and you get that convection action going, it's just, it's incredibly hot. And I'm kind of afraid of, of melting my thermometer or something. <laughs> and so uh, so I've just kind of <laughs> had to learn by experience that, you know, like, for instance, with my loaf bread, with sourdough bread, um, I watch the hearth temperature, And as soon as I see that the hearth temperature is just starting to drop, perfect time to put my loaf bread in there. Cooks perfectly every single time, really consistently and, you know, without burning. And so I've had to learn stuff like that. I've had my share of failures with that. Um, But... You know, I'm probably going to be on a learning curve for quite some time, I would guess, with that thing. But but I tell you what, it's been well worth the investment in time and effort. And I've learned a lot. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever build another oven again. But hey, if anybody asked me to come help them with it, I'd love to do that. Um, but. But it was a really neat project, and um, and I'm really loving the results that we get baking in that thing, or cooking other things as well.
0: Well, hey, I'll definitely give you a call when I'm building the next oven. You can come and help us out over here. Oh man,
1: <laughs> <laughs> I would so love I would so love to come to Guatemala. I've only ever even been to Mexico once, and never been anywhere else in Central America. And uh, I would just I would dearly love to do that.
0: <laughs> oh man, so. there's so many fun projects going on here I'll definitely keep you in the loop and we'll stay in touch but hey before I let you go here that
1: would be great
0: could you let our listeners know how they can get in touch with you where they can buy the book and any other uh, resources or links that you would send them to to learn more
1: okay sure yeah my book is called from no need to sourdough and the subtitle is a simpler approach to handmade bread Um, and that is still available for pre-order the official publish date is June 19th but it's available right now uh, for pre-order all of the usual places online. You can order it directly from my publisher, which is new society publishers and that's new society.com. Uh, and they, if you pre-order directly from the publisher, they're offering a 20% discount. If you pre-order it before the official publish date, um, you can also order it of course on Amazon or Barnes and Noble uh, places like that. Um, uh, to get a hold of me, um, my website is, I'll probably need to spell it out for you. It's, it's, it's my name, victoriaredheadmiller.com, and I'll just spell that out. Victoria is V-I-C-T-O-R-I-A. Redhead does not have an A in it. It's, uh, it's R-E-D-H-E-D. And then Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R victoriaredheadmiller.com and if you go there and click on the uh, tab that says contact it will take you to a contact form that goes directly to my email and that's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me you can easily find me under my full name Victoria Redhead Miller on Facebook um, I'm, I have a Twitter account which is Off Grid Writer O-F-F-G-R-I-D W-R-I-T-E-R uh, Um, but I have to say I am not on Twitter all that often. We are, we are off the grid and we don't have internet at home. Um, I'm on Facebook more frequently than on Twitter. Um, but, uh, so those are probably the easiest ways to get a hold of me. Marvelous. Um, And you can also, if you're, yeah, if you're anywhere in the area, I'm going the first weekend of June. I will be at the Mother Earth News Fair in Frederick, Maryland. And, uh, we should have advanced copies of the book there. So, if you're anywhere in that area and you want to come to the fair, um, I'd be happy to sign a book and answer questions, that sort of thing, and um, I'll also be at the rest of the Mother Earth News Fairs this year, all six of them, Uh, and uh, so you can look on that website, MotherEarthNewsFair.com, to find out the schedule of those events, I'll be at all of those, uh, and I'm always happy to answer questions if, uh, if people want to, you know, contact me through my contact form on my website um, or, you know, uh, send me a friend request on Facebook. Um, I'm always happy to answer questions when I have time to.
0: Excellent. I'll make sure that I put all of those links on the show notes for this episode. And I also just want to say Excellent. for the listeners out there that this is a really valuable book. I mean, I'm no novice to bread making myself and I got tons out of it, but there's also very easy to follow instructions um, and advice for novices as well. So really anyone at any skill level will get a lot out of this. Uh, thank you again so much for your time, Victoria. It's been such a pleasure talking to you today and let's stay in touch. Hopefully we can do a follow-up sometime.
1: Oh, I'd love to, Oliver. And thank you so much again for inviting me. I really appreciate your time and I enjoyed talking with you.
0: My pleasure. All right. You take care.
1: Okay. You too. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
0: Thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode. As always, you can find all the show notes for this and all other episodes at AbundantEdge.com by clicking on the podcast tab in the navigation bar. On the website, you can also find a whole range of educational articles, as well as the services we offer from design and consulting to education. While you're there, don't forget to take a look at the courses and workshops that we offer, which are all designed to empower you to take back control of your life by giving you the skills to produce your own food, manage landscapes regeneratively, build your own homes and structures with natural materials, and most importantly, to dream ever bigger about the highest potential that you could achieve for yourself, your community, and the planet that we all share. Thank you sincerely to all of you who have and continue to add comments and send feedback to me. Your contributions help this to be the conversation and dialogue that it's meant to be. For anyone else interested, you can email me and the whole team directly at info@abundantedge.com, or you can post your questions directly to the Abundant Edge podcast Facebook page to which there's a link in the show notes of this episode. All of your feedback makes these episodes and interviews so much more engaging and help me to give you the information and content that you want. Thank you so much for listening and I'll see you again in next week's session.